Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, Operationalizing Generative AI with returning guest, Dr. Jeffrey Lancaster. Jeffrey, welcome back to the show. Number four, the fourth time. These, these are so much fun, Darren. Um, I could we, we could do tons of these and I'd be perfectly happy. Uh, you, you know, we may, we may. Um, okay. th- this is, this is uh, I think this will be the almost the eighth se- uh, episode in a series on generative okay. AI. Um, I love having you come in in between some of these others because you and I are both generalists. The other ones got very specific on some very specific things. Um, but today I actually want to talk about operationalizing Gen AI. Um, Cause I think there's this misnomer out there. It's just there. It's, yeah. it's this thing that we just use and um, that could be kind of dangerous. Yeah. It's, it's, um, when something is so magical, it's easy to oversimplify it, right? And and I think part of the decisions that leaders are going to have to make, you know, requires a bit of understanding about what's actually going on under the hood. And so you don't have to understand it maybe at the, the level of, you know, what code is actually running, but you do have to make some decisions about where do you want this to run? Do you want it to run within your own infrastructure? Do you want it to run within somebody else's infrastructure? Do you want to have control over... Um, how many inputs are being brought into kind of updating the model, or do you want to put guardrails onto uh, the system that's being used? So, you know, maybe what we could do is talk through some of those decisions so that when people are kind of making a case for leveraging some of these tools, they can already have thought out, okay, well, this is what we're going to need to do it both responsibly, but also securely. And, you know, ultimately to meet the objective of whatever the case, the use case is that somebody's actually trying to accomplish. I totally agree. So let's start with the three different um, categories. No, they're really kind of three different sharing models of Gen AI, right? We got public, which is your chat GPT, Bard, a cloud. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we've got community and then we have private uh, Gen AI. Sounds a lot like what we did with cloud. We have private clouds, we have public clouds. There was this concept of community clouds that kind of disappeared, mm-hmm. but Gov, you can say Gov Cloud is a community cloud, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're going to see the same thing in Gen AI. Does that make sense? So I'll be honest, I'm not familiar with the community model. I'd love to hear more about that. But you know, the way that I think about it, you've got two ends of the spectrum and then something in the middle. The one end of the spectrum is, like you said, those open models where anybody can interact with the model and anybody is also kind of tuning the model because those models work through reinforcement. So they're taking what people are asking. They're taking people what uh, they're taking, what people are generating. They're taking the responses that are being produced. All of that is going back into training the large language model itself to deliver relevant answers. And so that's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is um, a private model. And that's where you might really lock down and limit maybe who has access to it, 
what data the model has access to, you know, in terms of when it's being trained, what it's being trained on. Um, and you really are being, you know, you're constraining the art of the possible in that case. And so there, that might be really useful in a lot of industry or corporate scenarios where you don't want it to engage in a lot of lateral thinking. You don't want it to engage in a lot of creativity or, you know, you just want that conversational user interface. Yeah, this is an, I, I've got a great point because it popped in my head when you were talking. Mm -hmm. If I put a Gen AI on my chatbot for my customer service and I mm -hmm. use a public one, that could be very dangerous because it could say, yeah. well, you should just buy this other product because it's more reliable, which is your competitor's right. product. But if I do yeah. a private Gen AI, I could put the guardrails in there saying, push my product always, right? Yeah. And you, you could even script it. You can get to the point where you're almost giving it the, the, the transcripts that you want it to produce and saying, try and keep, you know, in this, along these in this lines. realm. Okay. So and I can see, I can see the benefit of, of the private yeah. one for sure. Well, the challenge with the private one, and I'll tell you this, is that the computational uh, overhead that's already gone into the open models has already been done. So to train, you know, them, open AI, right? to Google, to train them. That's important to train the model. That's right. So they've already done the heavy lifting to train those models. If you go to a completely private model where you might say, you know what, we want to build our own, you're then going to have to um, take on that computational overhead in order to get to the point where you have a large language model that you can use. Now, luckily, there's that middle ground. And this is kind of what I was talking about there. You know, if this is a spectrum where you've kind of got a blended approach. And what that blended approach says is, okay, well, let me take the kind of linguistic underpinnings that I get from those pre-trained open models, but then layer on top of it some constraints. And by layering on top of it those constraints, you say, okay, I'm not going to have to retrain my own large language model, you know, which is going to take hours and hours of compute time and you know, generate a lot of Millions greenhouse gases. Potentially. I'm not going to have to reproduce what somebody else has already done, but by giving an additional layer that says, these are the ways that I kind of want to start to tweak some of the weights in the model. And I want to start to tweak some of the words that can be used. And, and maybe I, I don't want you to use these words, but I do want you to really prioritize these words. Then you can get to a point you can kind of tune that open model to something that actually meets your needs. So like you said, you're not getting your competitors' responses, but you're also not having to go and totally train one yourself. Okay, so I so that's really the only reasonable way you can move forward is to leverage models already out there. There are several open source models available. That's right. Uh, Llama 2, or as I was corrected by my my team down in South America, it's Yama, Yama 2. Yama. Um, so that's an open source model, very, very open source. You can do whatever you want with that model um, as long as you're following the ethics involved in, in, in LLMs. Um, that's right. So I'm seeing people starting to use those models to develop and put guardrails or specialize the model on certain things. Like on a previous podcast uh, where I talked about uh, Gen AI in infrastructure management, mm -hmm. we have a, a partner of ours that is putting Gen AI on the front end of managing their private clouds. Yeah. Super cool. Cause now yeah. I can ask my, my infrastructure, how are you doing today? Mm -hmm. Well, Hey, I'm doing pretty good except this one area is a little slow 
Or I can say, well, what parts are slow and why? Instead of mm -hmm. having to learn a bunch of commands and go through, what an incredible use of what I would call private, a private gen AI, right? Yeah. I trained it for the type of work I want it to do. Um, and it can, and it's getting live feeds from my data. And, and that's, you know, that's one of those considerations that people need to think through that before you and I have talked about kind of what data are you being, are you wanting to input into the model? What data do you want to get out? So if the type of data that you want to input, which might be infrastructure sensor data, if that's not been part of the text models or the image models or the video models or the music model, you know, the ones that have already been done, you might have to do it yourself and that that's okay. I think where, you know, where that gets really interesting is then when you can start to say, okay, well, if I can't adapt to the types of models that have already been produced, maybe I do have to go and train my own, but I don't need to train it with as many signals or as many features as what exists in right. it's Llama it's 2 or GPT. Right? Exactly. Right. So you end up finding some like a middle ground. Um, and you know, even, even OpenAI has said there's not going to be a, a GPT-5. That the way forward is not to just add billions and billions more indicators uh, within the model. What they're really going to do is they have to start thinking through, okay, how can we better either adapt the incoming data to get something that is useful? How can we better adapt the outgoing, uh, you know, whatever's produced and whatever's generated? So it's the current thinking, at least from a lot of the field is the way forward isn't more, more, more to expand. And so people shouldn't necessarily be put off to say, okay, I'm going to have to train a model that has, you know, a hundred billion um, hundred billion indicator. indicator yeah. Maybe my model only needs, you know, a few million or tens of millions. It depends on the data that that's coming into okay, it. Okay, so let let's move to. We talked about private. I think private Gen AI, mm -hmm. lots of opportunities, right? Yes. What about public? Does it really have a place moving forward where everyone? Because you've got a lot of people. You talked about reinforced learning that's happening mm -hmm. when people interact with ChatGPT or Bard. The model's changing and learning. Do I want that? Do I? Is there room? For, is there room for a public Gen AI um, in the future? What do you think? I think it's a really good question. And you know, for instance, we've talked about some of the different use cases. I'm writing emails. I don't want a sandbox version of no, you don't. writing email. Yeah. Maybe I want that broad. Uh, model. If I'm writing, you, you know, a book for for instance, I don't want something that's locked down. I want something that's going to bring in more um, maybe perspectives, more points of view, maybe more data. So ultimately, I keep coming back to the same thing, which is, yeah, there's a time and a place where you're going to want to constrain things, which might be brand identity, customer service, you right. know, competitive analysis, and then other like times that. where you want it really broad. Exactly, and and, and that's one of those early decisions that leaders are going to have to make is what amount of flexibility do I want the user to have in this system? Do I want them to be able to tap into a broad kind of brain trust or do I want them to have kind of a constrained uh, knowledge base to pull from? So to me, this is where community clouds fit in. 
Um, and, okay. And this, this concept goes way back to community grids back in the early 2000s when I was in uh, the Global Grid Forum. Um, there was this concept that communities would share. And I could totally see, especially in areas like medical, where doctors mm -hmm. would share a community gen AI, other doctors throughout um, an organization, or even better, throughout the country, where they're sharing mm -hmm. a gen AI to help do diagnosis. Wouldn't that be and, incredible? And that, uh, and that makes total sense. Yeah. I don't and want I that think when you start because I don't want, you know, some punk like me putting in mm -hmm. putting in stuff and you know asking stupid questions that changes a a medical gen AI. But qualified doctors that are interacting with the gen AI and sharing information. What an incredible way to share information with lots of doctors. So that community gen AI, I, I think, is going to be a really cool thing. Well, and, and I think what you're getting at is almost a role-based approach to who gets to retrain the AI. So, you know, if I oh, think about good, what's good. out there, if I think about the knowledge bases that are out there that might be the foundation for a community model, you brought up medical, right? So there's going to be a lot of doctors who might be interacting with it in a way to help with the diagnosis, to help with um, a treatment plan, to help generate things which they then might decide to tweak because they went to med school and did a residency and are qualified to actually do that. Whereas I, when I'm looking up drug interactions or I'm looking up something else, you don't want the model to maybe adjust exactly, because of my dumb question. That's exactly right. Can, can I eat cheese while I'm on this medicine you know, or whatever it is? Like that shouldn't influence the model. And so I think what we're going to see is in those community situations that certain users are going to have different privileges than maybe a general public user along the way. Well, and, and maybe they won't even have access to it at all. That's true. right. Because ask any doctor, they, they wish that WebMD was not around. Right, it's true. And, and yet, I've got all yeah. these symptoms. I'm going to die in three. No, you're not going to die. You know, you have allergies. But I mean, uh, you know, on the flip side of that, I do wonder the problem with the way that we interact with like a WebMD is that when I get results, I'm not also presented with, well, there's also all these other conditions that have the exact same yeah, symptoms. Correct. So I, I find the worst one, right? <laughs> Yeah. It's like you, you immediately go to that, to the red alert, which is go see your doctor immediately. But if I am getting some context and say, okay, well, hold on a second. Only, you know, 0.05% of the population has this, whereas 30% uh, of the population has this. It might be more likely that you don't need to have a large concern about this. Still go see your doctor. Let me make an appointment for you. You know, I, I do think tying together some of those different functions and the different context it still has a place. Okay, we've talked about we've talked about um, understanding um, the 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 scope, right, of public, community, and private. Let's talk about now as an organization. How do I how do I manage these AIs? Obviously, the public yeah. one I can't really manage. Right. It's a public right. one. I can have policy around it. I can do that. That's different. Let's talk about managing mm -hmm. my own gen AI uh, or community AI that maybe I'm managing. What operational things do I need to worry about? 
Well, there's a lot of stuff to worry about, but um, you know, let's talk about the decisions that you're going to want to make first. So the first decision is probably where do I want this thing to live? Do I want it to live in the cloud? Do I want it to live on-prem? Do I want it to live in some hybrid combination of the two of those? What I think is really interesting is do I want it to live on the edge? And this is, you know, you and I haven't really talked about what the future of some of this stuff is going to be yet, but it won't be long until the models and the compute necessary to run some of these things is going to be substantially smaller than it is today. So is there a case where I might want it to run out on a device where maybe it's not retraining the model there, but it's sending something back? It's doing of, all the inference you know, there. Exactly, okay. exactly. And, and, and it, you don't need that round trip maybe to take place for the data, but you're getting the benefit of that um, on a device, you know, maybe wherever you're located. So first decision is you know, in the cloud, on-prem, some hybrid infrastructure. Second decision that I would say that people have to make, and, and when you say worry, this is really what I would worry about, do I have the people and do I have the talent that can both set this thing up and also manage it? So to expect this to be a, you know, a thing where it's out of the box, you, you plug it in and it just goes, that's not going to be, at least today, the way that many of these models work. There is still going to be a matter of, am I stitching together different models? Right. Because there might be different components that go into it. There might be you know, an, uh, a socio-emotional component, you know, a model that's specifically trained for empathy. There might be a model that's specifically trained for generating imagery. There might be a model that's specifically trained for the conversational piece. Okay, so it's, it's a combination, do, yeah. right? So a, a total solution is going to be a combination of models stitched together, yeah. probably with an, an overarching input model and output model. So it's mm -hmm. it's not this big, huge Goliath thing that handles everything. In fact, we know with ChatGPT4, there's multiple models behind it. It's, it's parsing those things out um, based off of the input. So, okay, so there's some, there's some architecture work that has to happen, absolutely. Without a doubt. And, you know, and I think that architecture work has got to be based on what is the outcome that you want? You know, what is the case that you're trying to solve for? If you're trying to solve for every possible use case, I think you're really going to miss out. I think if instead you're saying, you know, this is going to be a customer service interface. This is going to be a tool that my development teams can use to think broadly and to brainstorm. Well, those two are very different in terms of how you might set them up. And you want to think through, again, those guardrails that you want to put on something. In one case, you might want it to have a lot of empathy because you might want to say, I'm so sorry you're having that problem. Um, you know, let me see uh, what other people have encountered in the past. Whereas in a brainstorming app, you might want it to be much more kind of a cheerleader. You say, that's a great idea. What if we also did this and this and this? To kind of expand the conversation that way. So, you know, there's not going to be, I don't think, a one size fits all. This is the way to do it because everybody's going to try and use it in a different way. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So we talked about location, architecture. Let's talk about a dirty little secret. Yep. And that is my models getting sick. There, yeah. There's some great examples out there where AIs were released and the trolls went crazy on them and they became misogynistic, bigoted, foul-mouthed, rude AIs. I mean, that has happened. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to name the two companies that that happened to, but it's happened right when they released out in the out in the wild. So what that tells me is ChatGPT or OpenAI 
and Google, they actually have someone kind of keeping the health of the Gen AI healthy, right? Because they can get sick. They can start making mistakes. Hallucinations are a real thing. So you can't just leave them alone, it sounds like. Does that sound right? I think we have to be careful. I would separate out those two as two different issues. Okay. One is an issue with, with reinforcement. So depending on how much authority you're giving to the user to then build that reinforcement into the model, you might then get it steered in a direction that you've seen a lot in the news. That's going to be really different than the level of hallucination, which in some cases you might want a lot of hallucination. So I don't want people to think of hallucination as a bad thing. We don't want to think of that creativity that's brought to it necessarily as something which is a flaw in the model. It's not a flaw. It's actually a feature. But it's a feature that you can tune. And, and you have to be really intentional about how you tune that feature. Because if you say, if you, if you ignore how much hallucination you want it to have, then you're going to get answers that you're not expecting. But again, those two different scenarios, customer service versus, let's say, brainstorming. Brainstorming, you might want a lot of hallucination because you're like, give me crazy, crazy ideas. ideas. Right. I'm yeah. going to be able to figure out what's what. Customer service, and this is maybe counterintuitive, you wouldn't want it to have zero hallucination because how often does somebody call a customer service line and know exactly what their problem is? Rarely. More often than not, somebody says, you know, this is what's going on. Like it's not working the way that it's supposed to. It's doing this and this. And you want it to still have a little bit of creative freedom to start to address and, and get to a point where you can actually diagnose what the issue is that's going on. So you're not maybe ramping up the creativity all the way because you don't want them to say, oh, you know, you need to take your cat outside and that's the problem. That'll fix it. <laughs> but you do still want to give it enough where it's not going to require exactly saying something in a certain way to be able to get to the answer. Okay. So I, I love, I love how you differentiate the two hallucinations. I is the creativity part of the AI. I want that, but I want to be able to adjust that as I need to. Right. Yeah. The other part what we talked about is the AI model learning from interacting with people. That's where it can get sick, right? Real, really right. sick based off of the interactions it's having with people and how much weight you give that interaction to adjusting the model. So, so those guardrails that you want to put in place, you might say, you know what? I don't think our customer, um, you know, th that initial prompt should be rolled into the model. I, I'm going to wait for uh, you know some log data. I want to go back and look at it, and I want to see how people are actually using it. Or exclude curse words from in infiltrating the model because you really don't want your AI cursing right. back at people. Exactly, curse words, but also topics. Ta yeah, so you topics, can say, okay, yeah. in you know, you might plug into a knowledge base that has a very very broad knowledge graph. But within that knowledge graph, you might cut off certain connections and say, you know, I don't want you to bring up anything having to do with religion. I don't want you to bring up anything politics. having to do with politics, but, you know, anything like that. Or you might say, you know what, I want to limit this to religion. Maybe you're building something oh, yeah, that's, a, yeah. you know, a, a modern confessional for the church or something like that. Like there, you know, again, it's a decision that has to be made, but you want to know going into it, these are some of the decisions we're going to have to agree on 
before we just dive in and start building and, and you know, limiting even what can be brought into so it. So it's really interesting to me because the AI model itself is changing, mm -hmm. right? So does it make sense at all to snapshot these models or version control them saying, I really like this model the way it is. I want to take a snapshot of it, put it over here, have it keep mm -hmm. learning. But I really, if I want to, I can go back. What, what I think you're getting at and then what, you know, the next logical step of that might be is the personalization of the model. Okay. So, you know, it won't be long. And this is where some of the dialogue tracking and the dialogue state tracking comes into play with something like ChatGPT, for instance, you can get it to remember all of the things that you've already talked about, which might include settings or tone or ways that you wanted to interact. And you can actually encapsulate that into a personality. Now, you and I might each want a different personality to interact with. Now, in reality, what that is, is that's a different kind of snapshot of the model, but really it's kind of a different implementation of the way that it's going to interact with you. You're almost like pre-configuring the model to interact and engage with you in a certain way. So could it not be long until each of us has a different um, model that we're interacting with? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, I, I, I can see that. And it can keep state, right, on that. I give it a name of a persona. Hey, this is this is Darren. You know, Darren. Yeah. And hey, anytime you interact with Darren, I want you to respond um, in this tone, right? Yeah. And today, today I want to, I want to talk to this personality. Maybe, you know, later today, I want to talk to a different personality I, I can, because, yeah. yeah, I can totally see okay. a new branch of psychology coming out of this. Well, and it's, you know, it, it still does require the user to do a little bit of that thinking oh, yeah. because yeah. maybe I want a personality, you know, on the one hand, that's really good at writing scientific articles you know, that has that language that knows the kind of way to speak in uh, for a scientific journal. But then later, maybe I'm doing something where I want somebody who's creative and supportive. And, you know, maybe that's a different tone. And so that might be a different um, setting that I could use when I then go to engage with the tool then. Okay, so that this is interesting, because I could do that at a company level, too. So, that's right. So there is operational I have to interact with this. I have to operationalize it. I have to use it. It's just I'm going to be using it differently than I've I've done other things. Like I fine tune my databases for the type of work it needs to do. I can fine tune my my AI um, to do the same by creating personas or creating my own models. Either either way, yeah. based off of a a public model. Um, let let's let's tie this all all together in a in a nice tight bow. How do I get started? Where do I go? I mean, where do I go to get started for, um, for my for my company or for me personally? Yeah, great question. So, those are going to be two different answers, right? right? So, if I'm going to start using this for myself personally, my recommendation is go start playing with the tools. You know, again, depending on what you want to do, get some of that usage under your belt. Go out, sign up for a, a GPT account. Go out, sign up for Bard or start using it in your search. Go out and sign up for Midjourney or Dolly, you know, see what the tools can do because once you understand what the tools can do, you're going to better be able to formulate the question that you want. When you go to do this for your company, you know, you don't want to start dumping your company data into those open models. We've seen that not go well. 
So you want to have a little bit more discretion and maybe thought put into it before you set that up. What a lot of companies are doing is they're building a sandbox where people can go and play within kind of a safe space. Um, that's my recommendation for a first step. Before you jump to implementing a production environment, test it out. See how people use it. Let people interact with whatever you've built so you can see, are there other considerations that we might need before we get to the point of releasing this into the wild? I Great, great, great advice, uh, Jeffrey. As always, it's fun to talk. It's fun to go through these things. We most definitely are going to have you back. Um, and uh, keep, keep keep listening to the show on Gen AI. It, it's a hot topic. We cover hot topics. Uh, so uh, thanks again, Jeffrey. Thank you, Darren. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.com. Dot org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.